We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Greg Berhalter, all right, in July of 2026, is going to bring us to the mount. He is going to give us the greatest moment of glory when it comes to this men's national soccer team and win the World Cup in basically his backyard. Talk about full circle. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking, well, World Cup 2026 game schedule. It is out, baby. Lindsey Oran taking some shots. Arsenal rebounds, Inter rolls, Mbappe au revoir. Gio's England intro, Luca on fire, Messi irritation, Griselda, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this Monday, February 5th in the year 2024? I'm doing well, although I was lied to. When I moved to L.A., I was told it had nice weather. Yes. Uh, weather in Los Angeles is always a big topic, not just locally, but even nationally and internationally. My mom, who lives out there in the D.C. area, called me today to make sure that I wasn't underwater. And for those that don't know, yeah, we've been getting massive amounts of rain. We have gotten massive amounts of rain in in the past, but obviously it's not the norm for us. And all hell breaks loose here when it rains in terms of what people do, what people don't do. It affects school. It affects driving for sure because nobody can drive. I I will say I was worried when coming into work today that it was going to be problematic. It was actually pretty empty on the roads because a lot of people just said, screw it, I'm not going to happen. However, there were plenty of lights that were completely out. So be careful out there if you are in the Los Angeles area. I, you don't need pity or, or sympathy coming from the rest of the world and what's going on here. We'll, we'll get through this deluge, no problem. But yes, it does uh, you know, throw some problems. And like I said, the, some electricity's out there. Did you have electricity at your place? You're all good? Yes, I was good on that front. Producer Sean lost his electricity, so uh, he, he's had to read by candlelight. So who knows? Maybe he's returning to you know a, a, a simpler time. Maybe this is what's gonna what's gonna happen for him. Have well that you have electricity. Have you been able to watch anything? A few weeks ago, it was the 25 year anniversary of the debut of The Sopranos. The first episode aired in January of 1999. And yesterday at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, I attended an event to commemorate that. They showed two episodes, which was really cool to watch in a theater on the big screen. And then there was a panel afterwards with David Chase 
the creator and two of the writers, Matthew Weiner and Terrence Winter, who went on to show run very successful shows in their own right. Uh, Matthew Weiner did Mad Men, which is another Pantheon show for me. Sure. And Terrence Winter did Boardwalk Empire. They talked for about an hour, uh, some interesting stories about the making of The Sopranos, and they reflected on the state of TV and the legacy of that show. It was phenomenal. I loved it. Had a great time. How did they pick which episodes to show? Or they were just random? Or David Chase picked them. And uh, one episode really featured Pauly Walnuts, and the other featured Uncle Junior. And he said, for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to show some love to those two characters. And so that's why he picked the episodes that he picked. Well, from one... Uh, uh, drug uh, and organized crime kingpin to another. Uh, I watched Griselda. This is over here on uh, Netflix. And this is about the, um, uh, you know, this drug lord down in Miami, uh, a woman from Colombia, And as she made her way in Miami, uh, in Miami through not just her smarts, but also, I mean, just a ruthlessness when it came to the violence that she employed in order to grab a hold of the drug trade down there, made lots of money, made lots of enemies, ultimately was shot in the back of the head, execution style down there in Colombia um, as, uh, as, as an older woman after she had gone back to Colombia. Anyway, uh, it, it is a, it's a famous type of story from um, you know, the, the drug stories and sagas out there. Sofia Vergara, who we know from uh, a lot of different things, but not the least of which is her comedy chops that she has out there. She stars as this. And you know that this was done to kind of show Sofia Vergara in a different light. And long line of these things happening, whether it's um, with Charlize Theron, you know, when, when she played uh, serial killer Eileen Warmus or, you know, Courtney Love when she started acting, um, Jim Carrey, all those types where you see them in one way and they want to expand that. They want to broaden their horizons, if you will, and they use these vehicles. And this was designed, I think, to give Sofia Vergara this vehicle where we could see her differently than the comedic actress, which she was incredibly good at. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that it does that. This is a perfect example of um, cigarette acting. There is smoking, I think, in every single scene. Sofia Vergara is smoking in this scene. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily interesting or you know, strange. We've seen that in cinema for, for years. It's a little different now with the way that we look at cigarettes. But it, it is used. It is actually employed in the telling of this story to a degree that I think it becomes incredibly distracting. And if you watched it or have watched it, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. So I can't give this a two thumbs up. It did not hold my attention. And Sofia Vergara, while capable, it didn't transform the way that I think about her. And I, I think, what, like I said, what it was trying to do, it didn't ultimately accomplish. Disappointing. I was planning to watch that. Well, no, no, I'm a big uh, Narcos fan. Well, you should you should watch it. And you know, some of the violence. It, it it's it's not anything new. It's stuff that we have heard. Um, it it was interesting to see how she parlayed what she had and the way this woman in a very obviously male dominated field, if you call drug dealing a field, was able to rise to the top. But she did it through through uh, plenty of violence. I did, after getting home from the Sopranos event, I did watch another great episode of True Detective and the season premiere of the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I forget, are you a Curb Your Enthusiasm guy? I am, but it's an airplane type of watch in that inevitably, especially I, I'm a 
a loyal Delta person, they always have Curb Your Enthusiasm as part of it. And so I will watch multiple episodes if I'm flying, but I will not necessarily seek it out. However, it's one of those shows also, if it shows up, I'll sit there and watch it. I'll, not, I'll, I'll rarely change it because to your point, it's incredibly written and incredibly acted. So uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Where should we start here? I, I, that's that's just a leading question because we know where we're going to start. Well, I talked about how lousy the weather in LA has been the last couple of days. Hopefully that's not the case come the summer of 2026. Wow, wow. Yes. Okay, so we uh, this Sunday, another uh, FIFA production on Fox. Our good friend uh, Rob Stone was part of it and um, uh, was here in, uh, in Los Angeles at SoFi, one of, the, uh, one of the venues. Jenny Chaft was also a uh, host in Miami. And we come to find out where the United States, Mexico, and Canada, obviously the three uh, joint hosts for this World Cup in 2026, Men's World Cup in 2026, where the U.S. teams are going to be based and where they're going to play their group games. The other things that was announced was all of the different venues and all the different uh, cities, how many games they were ultimately going to get. Obviously, we don't know what teams those will be involved, but the number of group games they're going to get and then the number of uh, round of 32, 16 uh, quarters, semis, and final. So um, there's, that, there's a lot of information that came out here. Uh, let's, should we start with the final? So uh, for those that watched, you will know, and for those that don't, you probably still know, yes, the final is going to be in New Jersey in East Rutherford. Uh, the venue is being called New York, New Jersey. That should surprise no one. What should surprise many is that it wasn't in Dallas. All indications were pointing towards Dallas getting the final. And uh, for those that were there, it was kind of like an election night thing in that everybody's there, everybody that organized it, and they're all waiting for that announcement. And then when it comes, obviously somebody's very happy. And, and the folks over there in New Jersey were very happy. But the folks in Dallas who thought that they had this sewn up it was, I guess they would say, taken away from them. I, I thought that it was going to go to Dallas for a number of reasons. Uh, time zone, which is good. Obviously, Eastern Co East Coast is, I guess, better from a European perspective, but Dallas is fine, time zone. Number two, as we know, there are roofed and climate-controlled venues in this World Cup, four of them, uh, including Dallas. So you don't, to your point, have to worry uh, about, uh, about weather. And, you know, what Dallas has become. Now, is it as sexy as New York and as attractive as New York? No. So on the surface, it, it, I'm fine. It's going to be great. It's, the whole tournament's going to be wonderful. But it is a little surprising that this is not going to be Dallas. And God forbid that there is any type of weather or lightning. Um, that could be certainly problematic. And just from a pure stadium, I cannot tell you the amount of people that when this happened said, even people from New Jersey, people that love the East Coast, that said, if in a compare and contrast between stadiums, it's not even a compare and contrast between, I guess, MetLife, although we're going to call it New York, New Jersey Stadium there in East Rutherford, and AT&T, which I guess is going to be called Dallas Stadium because they're not allowed to use the sponsors in a, in a FIFA situation. So, Mossy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you and I are on a text chain with the State of the Union podcast yes. crew and some of the reaction there. Sean Sullivan, boo, cat, MetLife is hands down the worst stadium I have ever been to. <laughs> My God. It's, and this is a new stadium. I played back in the day at old Giants Stadium. So this is a, a new modern type of stadium. But um, whatever they did, they didn't do enough. And Dallas was also going to, between now and 26, have, 
I think $350 million of improvements ar- around. So, uh, you know, I'm, I am a little disappointed that we're not going to have first what would be the first men's final indoors in a climate controlled type of uh, situation. But it's still it, it's still going to be great. And I, I, I look forward to that. Uh, Dallas did get a semifinal. The semis will be in Dallas and Atlanta, third place game in Miami, and the final, as you mentioned, MetLife Stadium. I think at the end of the day, FIFA liked the cachet of L.A. and New York. Uh, You can call me a coastal elitist if you want, but if you go anywhere else in the world and you say United States, what cities are you thinking of first? People are going to invariably say New York and L.A. And so at the end of the day, I think that won the day, even if if you actually look into the nitty gritty of it, it might not make as much sense. But uh, that FIFA, they just think a World Cup final should be held in a global city like New York rather than somewhere like Dallas. I think that eventually we will find out what the deciding factor was. It will leak out one way or the other. Uh, you know, in this hyper political age, you think of what Texas is relative to New York and New Jersey and all that. I'm not sure that that had anything. I, I would hope that that had nothing to uh, nothing to do with it. But you know, given given FIFA's history, hell, we've been to Qatar, and there's a good chance that we're going to Saudi Arabia going forward. So they tend to, you know, not care about a lot when it comes to it. But it is interesting in this in this age and in this moment that we're living. And growing up in New York, as I did, the New York New Jersey dynamic is funny to me. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast once before, but after the Giants' second Super Bowl victory over the Patriots, uh, Chris Christie and Michael Bloomberg got into this pissing contest over where the parade should be. And the Giants ended up having to have two different parades, one in New York, one in New Jersey, to satisfy both sides. So, yeah, that is a long-running issue. Uh, and listen, as far as FIFA is concerned, this final is in New York. People in New Jersey can complain about it, but that's how FIFA and the rest of the world is going to treat it. And if you go through the venues, I mean, there are plenty of venues that are not in the actual name of what we're calling it okay i mean right here uh sofis in inglewood right so you can here in uh here in los angeles but you go through them all there are plenty of them that are not in the city that we are attaching the significance to obviously this is different in terms of a of a state even go to you know monterey and these these types of uh uh places so th- this is this is fine i don't want us to get you know just caught up on all of this stuff. New Jersey is going to get plenty of love. As a matter of fact, given the history of New Jersey, Carney right down the right down the road, and and what that what that state and what that area has meant to soccer in the United States, they are going to get plenty of love. So New Jersey is going to be fine. New York's going to be fine. But when you're talking to the world, obviously there's much more cachet and much more name recognition, which is why. The Red Bulls and why the Metro Stars and everybody have always associated themselves with New York. You're, you want that. And, you, and it's sexier, like you said, and it resonates around the world, as does Dallas much more than Arlington, as does Los Angeles much more than Inglewood. That's just the facts. Greg Berhalter is from New Jersey, correct? He is. Perhaps the next time we speak to him, whenever that is, I'll, I'll bring up the fact that the World Cup final is in New Jersey. Greg Berhalter. All right. In July of 2026 is going to bring us to the Mount. He is going to give us the greatest moment of glory when it comes to this men's national soccer team and win the World Cup in basically his backyard. Talk about full circle. That's going, uh, that is certainly going to be interesting. And Dallas got nine games, too. So Dallas, that was probably the peace offering and said, all right, you're not going to get the final that you thought you're going to get, but you are going to get nine games, which is the most of anybody out there. And the U.S., we found out the location for all of their group games. It'll be L.A., Seattle, and L.A. And again, back to my point about New York and L.A. having this cachet. 
I never bought the idea that L.A. was going to get shunted to the, to the side and not play a prominent role because, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, it is Los Angeles. So I knew that Stan Kroenke and Johnny Fantino were going to sort out their differences to some degree that would enable L.A. to play a prominent role, and it will. Uh, it'll host two of the U.S.'s group games, as it did in 94. Colombia and Romania were both at the Rose Bowl, right? This time around, it'll be the first and third games at SoFi. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to recognize that FIFA, obviously this is a 48-team tournament, three countries, uh, many new venues uh, from both a U.S. and a Mexican and, and Canadian perspective. And they are erring on the side of the players and the teams. And they want to limit travel. They are having teams play in regions for the most part. And you hear Greg Berhalter immediately after this came out, he was very, very clear that when they came to coaches and when they came to teams and federations for their input, I'm talking about FIFA, Greg Berhalter in particular, I'm, I'm assuming Matt Crocker and the Federation in general was adamant about how travel is a problem. And so in this situation, in this scenario, while it's not ideal for American soccer fans who want to see their team that play on the East Coast or the Midwest, this is ultimately a competitive decision. The two games in Los Angeles, the one game in Seattle. Now, after you get out of the group stage, you can certainly go some different places. And who knows, you might not see, unless you come west, your, uh, your men's national team play in the 2026 World Cup in the group stage. But who knows, you could probably see it, you know, knock on wood, they get through and they play some different games, including, by the way, a, a potential July, not well, that's going to happen, potentially the U.S., you know, considering where they go, a July 4th, 2026 Philadelphia game, the 250th birthday of the greatest nation in the world, the United States. That would be something if that involved the U.S. It's going to be something no matter what. But all in all, I think everybody was excited. But I, 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 there is a part of me that says, well, should there have been a game further east of for the U.S.? And it's you know it's a couple hours. Two, two and a half hours up to Seattle from Los Angeles. Obviously, you're going to fly charter. You could go two and a half hours anyway. Seattle's going to be great. And what Seattle has become from a soccer perspective, here's a perfect example of how the landscape has changed and how significantly it has. Seattle, for the first time, from a men's perspective, getting a World Cup uh, as a World Cup venue, teams like, or places like Chicago out, Detroit out, Orlando out, these types of places are gone. So the, the landscape has changed. 94 for you guys, it was the Silverdome against Switzerland, right? Yep. The, the day after the OJ Bronco chase. Yes, yep. Then Colombia and Romania in the Rose Bowl. And then against Brazil, July 4th at Stanford Stadium, right? Yeah, it's not really San Francisco. It's, uh, right. <laughs> and neither will it be in the new uh, Levi Stadium up there. So, But yeah, the Philadelphia thing is a nice touch. Have you ever been to Independence Hall where yes. the Declaration of Independence yes. was signed? Yes, oh yes, absolutely. I mean, so the, the history... And and then there's another one who's getting a first time is uh, Philadelphia. So, you know, this is this is going to be awesome. I think we could nitpick and, and scream and yell about why isn't this here or why isn't this this there. When you look again at the number of games, also should be a reminder: this is a 48 team tournament. It goes to a round of 32, then it goes to round 16 and 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 onward. Which means that in order to win a World Cup you have to play eight games. This will be the first time that that has ever happened. How does that affect the records or the record book? I don't know. But this is ultimately what's going to have happen. And what, also, what it also means is while 
the 24 teams come out of the, the, the groups in the top two, it also means there are third place finishers. Um, and you know, that's going to be what six, seven, eight teams that are going to be third place finishers. If the U S fails to come out of the group, then we might as well just all go home and, and, and stop it. So it, it's, it's all for the taking in 2026. And we should say Mexico's three group games, Mexico City, Guadalajara, then back to Mexico City, and then Canada's three group games, Toronto first, and Vancouver, Vancouver, BC Place, a venue that you and I are familiar with from covering the 2015 Women's World Cup. That's for sure. Uh, places like Atlanta, I don't think it was a surprise. They were rumored to get us a semifinal. They are certainly going to get a, a semifinal. You mentioned Miami. And what Miami has now kind of become from a soccer perspective, they're being rewarded. Oh, it also should be <laughs> mentioned that uh, FIFA has moved offices down to Miami, too. So, it, you know, some of these decisions, ultimately, they are made by FIFA. But some of these decisions, well, they are made ultimately by humans. And humans, well, you know, they go on feel. Uh, there was a question, Mossy, when it came to Los Angeles, because, as we know, there is a history of games in Los Angeles and other places. but oftentimes we, we talk about it, Los Angeles, where the United States national team has been in that quote-unquote away game type of scenario. And so there was a question that I actually got over there on X about, is this problematic playing two games in this tournament in Los Angeles where I guess they looked at it as the potential to, for it to be an away game? Now, I will say back to 1994, and it was a long time ago playing Colombia and Romania, it was as American as you can get, not all Americans, certainly plenty of Colombians and Romanians for that matter. You, you, you want that. Yes, you want it to be predominantly American. I think that, that that's not going to be a problem. First off, you're not playing against Mexico. And oftentimes that's how we talk about these games is against Mexico or, you know, another Central American type of team. That's, that's not going to happen. But, you know, if playing two games in Los Angeles and one game in Seattle is going to bring down the U.S. men's national team in 2026, then it's on us. It's on the United States Soccer Federation. It's on Greg Berhalter, and it's on Matt Crocker because they have orchestrated this. They've helped orchestrate this, and they have gotten what they have wanted in terms of the travel, in terms of being in a, a region and staying there, and FIFA has agreed to that. And finally, I'll, I'll say this. The Atlanta training facility, they have already said that they are going to, prior to that tournament, use that and that it will be done by then this new training facility is going to be uh, built down there right outside of atlanta so a lot of these are all good things these are all as tata martino would say these are all champagne champagne problems if they're even problems are you as high on hard rock stadium as others i saw some people like michael de tweet that that's the single best soccer venue in the united states right now is it what what, what has changed i mean right now like have they added urinals or what, what's, what's what makes it good right now with Messi and what, what is happening in Miami. I think there obviously is a lot of focus and attention and excitement and buzz. And you mentioned it earlier, sexiness to Miami, not just domestically, but I think from people coming in. So I think that that plays into it. So I, I, in that sense, I think that he's right in that Miami is hot. I guess literally and figuratively it is hot. As for the show itself, you mentioned Rob Stone and Jenny Taft. We also had uh, contributions from Kevin Hart and Kim Kardashian. How do you think they did? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure in any time you get up in a live format, somebody's going to say something that somebody doesn't agree with or, or, or wants to cancel him or her for. So uh, there were, if, you, if you are inclined to do that, I'm sure you could find moments uh, that you could uh, say, well, why did he or she say something like that? 
was was her son wearing a, a Real Madrid shirt or something like that? I mean, we couldn't get him in a, a U.S. shirt. I mean, whatever. Uh, it's it's not an easy gig. And Rob Stone showed why he is a pro. Um, and and it's not also not an easy gig for uh, for Jenny Taft over there uh, with uh, you know uh, Andres Cantor and everybody there. It's just it's just not easy. Johnny Infantino, the uh, president of FIFA. With that hood life, hoodie life, I guess it would be <laughs> with his with his get up. And you know, there were awkward pauses as as there often are. There was times lost stuff that was lost in translation. Heather O'Reilly uh showed up on the uh, scene, which was great to see there. So there was an American feel. And you know, ultimately this was about the information. They really dragged it on there for a while until uh, until finally giving us the information. But it did make it kind of real, Mossy. It did make it kind of like, hey, all right, now. Now it's happening. We have where these games are going to be played, obviously from U.S. perspective. And now people can start to figure out. The other thing is there's six to seven days in between games, which is wonderful from a Fox perspective in terms of hyping up what is going to happen and giving, giving the runway to some of these incredible epic types of days that we are going to have. That's a good thing. And for Greg Berhalter, it's, um, it's, more, it's more rest. So. Anyway, anything else on the uh, schedule that you wanted to mention, Mossy? I'll just say I'm proud to say that I have never watched one second of any Kardashians TV show. Ever? Ever. What about video? You never watched any? No. Never watched any of her videos? I I bet people like Aaron Schechter and Kyla have never missed an episode. They're they're sort of that age range, but uh, no, never never did anything for me. Yeah, she's got some interesting videos. Um, Okay, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, there was all sorts of action going on uh, on the field that we can talk about. Some really, really interesting results and some changing of uh, the way some of these leagues are looking. So don't go. Anywhere. Okay, welcome back. Let's uh, recap a massive, massive weekend of uh, some really interesting soccer, both in Europe. Uh, should we start in Mexico, though? Let's do it. America, Monterrey finish 1-1 at the Azteca. Valdez and Canales with the goals. Zendejas and Brandon Vasquez both started for their respective clubs. So, as we mentioned, starting is good. And it's interesting when we're, we're assessing um, attacking players, uh, American players or any, uh, you know, you, the, the ability to judge them simply on if they're on the score sheet, assist, goal, whatever. It, I know it, it's easy and it's simple. Doesn't always tell the full the full story, uh, you know. However, for someone like Brandon Vasquez, who came over, like I said, hit the ground running, scored some goals. That's wonderful, and that's catnip to all of us. This is still fine, okay? This is still fine in that he's starting. They have confidence in putting him on the field. He is bringing something that they need and something and something different, uh, you know. But. He's not going to be able to score every single every single game, and just because he doesn't doesn't mean that oh you know the bloom's off or uh, or he's having problems right now or they've tr- they finally figured him out. Now you go for long long periods, and that can be that can be problematic. But you know again, I love the fact that he came in. There wasn't a betting in type of process. There was a recognition. Hey, we spent money for this player, and like any player in the world, happens to be American. If we're going to spend that money, they're going to get a longer leash and they're going to get opportunities over others because this is the asset that we have and we got to let this guy show why we paid money for him and why we wanted him. So, you know, we just talked about the 26 World Cup. There's something about the Azteca games there just feel more important. It's history. 
You know, it's it, it's romance. It, it, people could say the same thing. I know we just talked about SoFi, the same thing about the Rose Bowl and other places. Obviously, both of them have historic World Cup histories. And, you know, the Azteca, you just say it and it conjures up, conjures up memories. And the, the problem is if and when, and I don't think it's time yet for the Azteca, the romance, you know, ceases to be enough. <laughs> and the environment that you're in, uh, either from a business perspective or, or from an experience perspective, is just not good enough. I, I've been to Azteca. You know, it's not your state of the art type of stadium, and nor should be because because of it, it's it's so old. But there are older stadiums that have been upgraded and changed, and Azteca has, and we've seen it. You know, even over the last couple of years, go through different things. But there is going to be a feeling of, like I said, romance and nostalgia in 26 when we're seeing games in the Azteca, and there is now, even when you see it, uh, you know, in a, in a club situation. Yep. We go to England next, the big one in the Premier League this past weekend, Arsenal with a 3-1 home win over Liverpool. Each team gifted the other a goal. Uh, late in the half, Liverpool scored one thanks to a freakish own goal by Gabriel Magalhães. And then Arsenal went back ahead. Horrible mistake by Allison, which Gabriel Martinelli capitalized on. Uh, Saka and Trossard also scored. Arsenal, clearly the better team. I thought Liverpool were very poor, so a deserved win for them. And the way we framed this was Arsenal needed to make a statement that they're in this title race too, that it's a three-team race with them, Liverpool, and Manchester City. And at least for now, they accomplished that. I didn't think that uh, Arsenal was going to play as well. I certainly didn't think that Liverpool was going to play as poorly as they did. And this was, from start to finish, a poor Liverpool performance. And, you know, we had talked about the Klopp announcement and how, you know, that 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 this group would play for him. <laughs> in this game, it looked like they were playing against him. And it happens. And some big players, you mentioned Allison and uh, Virgil van Dijk. And you know, Virgil van Dijk raised his hand and said, this was on me. And this is one of the great defenders, center backs in the world, making what they would, what would call it, schoolboy mistakes uh, in, in a game. And that can happen. I don't think Klopp's going to lose a tremendous amount of sleep over it, but it does put Arsenal right back into the conversation. It does make it a situation where it puts doubt into uh, others, other people's minds, uh, and whether it's the opposition or fans, or fans out there. And this is good because I, I want to have a title race. We're coming on air here on Monday, February 5th. Manchester City has already closed the gap because they, they had two games in hand, so they're already now three, three, two points behind, but with a game in hand. Correct. They just beat Brentford 3-1, Phil Foden with a hat-trick. So right now it's Liverpool 51, City and Arsenal both at 49, but City with one fewer game than the other two. So, yeah, setting up to be a very fun race there. Nottingham Forest, 1-1 draw away to Bournemouth. The bad news on the American front. Forrest signed a goalkeeper right before the deadline. This Belgian Matt Seltz from Strasbourg. And he went straight into the lineup, uh, benching Matt Turner. The good news on the American front, Gio came on uh, in the second half, replacing Elanga. It was on the field for about 20 minutes and looked pretty good. And he came over there on that uh, right uh, flank, if you will, right? Uh, so, you know, the, the talk of, you know, what's Gio's best position? And obviously it can change relative to the environment and the different teams that he's playing. A lot of people want him to be in that 10 when it comes to the U.S. team. Uh, but he has certainly shown that out wide, he loves to, you know, to, to drift out wide or start out wide in this position. Great that he got on the field. A great, again, 
that they recognized, hey, we, we have this asset that just came in and we're just going to throw him right into the game. It's probably not fair to, to judge him immediately on what happened. He didn't look out of place. He didn't look overawed. I don't think anybody thought he would. But the ultimate, you know, judgment obviously is going to be at the end of this season. This is a good point. And, you know, we know that Nottingham Forest is still not out of the forest. They still got work to do. But, you know, Gio Reyna didn't embarrass himself. And I certainly think that he can do better. And I certainly think that they recognize that they have something different in Gio Reyna. And so when he gets a little bit more acclimated and a little bit more com- comfortable for what the EPL is and the EPL through, uh, through Nottingham Forest, then maybe we'll see more of what a lot of us believe is there. The goals were courtesy of Clivert and Hudson Odoi. Hudson Odoi did get injured. That has potential geo playing time implications. We'll see what the update is on that. We'll stay in England, but drop down a level. Josh Sargent continues to play well for Norwich. He scored again in their 2 1 win over Coventry. And it's, you know, it was one of these. Did he, is it going to go in a time capsule? No. But for those that are watching, you can see it here. It, it's, it's a poacher. He's just in an area where he needs to be. And yeah, there's a deflection and a miss hit and all that kind of stuff. And it just pops up to him and he wastes no time. There was a ruthlessness, obviously a clinical type of finishing that I think any striker needs and certainly you want to have. But in that moment, that's great. You're judged by goals and they don't care how pretty they are. This is not the prettiest goal, but I, but I actually love it. I love the fact that in that moment, because how many times have we been watching American players? Oftentimes we do. And they get that, I guess it's a half chance. It's probably a little bit more than a half chance. And they flub their lines or they're not prepared for it and ready. And like any soccer player or any good soccer player, whether you're an attacking player or a defending type of player, you got to be saying, what if? And in this moment, when that ball went past him, there's a tendency, just a human tendency to let your guard down. And he turned around immediately found himself, hey, I got this nice little gift and smashed it home. So congratulations to him. He's looking good. We go to Italy next. AC Milan with a 3-2 away win over Frosinone. Pulisic started. He was replaced by Jovic, who then promptly scored the game winner. And Musa came on late. I don't have a lot to say about this game, Asi. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's a good result. It's a good result. Feels like Musa, his influence might be waning a little bit. Yeah. I, I love Musa, but I, I, I look at it through a U.S. lens, uh, not just a U.S. lens, a U.S. men's national team lens. And, you know, I, I have a hard time finding a situation where you're not using him more. But, you know, different strokes, and he, he might not, he might have to work harder in this type of situation to prove his worth. But I still think that when all is said and done, this is a guy that you want. And from an AC Milan perspective, where we know they're good, but they're not necessarily great yet, I think that they're going to need him going forward. Uh, the big one in Italy, Inter beat Juventus 1-0 in the Derby d'Italia, a first-half own goal by Gatti. The difference, Inter clearly the better team. They should have won by more. Cialanolo hit the post in the second half. Chesney made a couple of great saves on Barella and Arnautovic. Uh, McKenney started. Timmy Weah came on as a sub. So first off, to McKenney. Uh, again, I thought one of the better players on the field for a Juventus that you rightly say, they're not on the interlevel. And I think that this proved that from top to bottom and from a depth perspective, Inter is better. 
They were a better team. They ultimately got the result. It should have been more. But purely from a U.S. perspective, I think that this was a, another great game for Weston McKinney. You know, he had a wonderful, uh, you know, a couple of runs, even one where he uh, dribbling through a bunch of people. And we know we've seen Weston in kind of a more defensive role at times, but the marauding Weston was nice to see in that game. But he was playing on a team that was not as good as the opposition. And so I think that the, um, the, the, the Scudetto is done. Give it to Inter. Inter with a four-point lead and a game in hand, so yep. they're certainly in the driver's seat there. We go next to the Netherlands. Ajax PSV finished 1-1. Uh, Pepe and Tillman did not play due to minor injuries, so Dest was the only American involved. So then I don't care, right? Okay. <laughs> but elsewhere in the Netherlands, there was a major American story. Utrecht beat Volendam 4-2. Taylor Booth with a hat-trick for Utrecht. And his brother, Zach Booth, scored one of the goals for Volendam. Quite the day for the Booth brothers. Yeah, I mean, that's just a wonderful story, right? And uh, my, my brother is three years younger than me. And we grew up playing together. I did end up playing against him and with him for a a couple of moments and it was i'll be honest it was cool it was a real thrill to be out there um you know the 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 booths here to be out there on the field they had a bet after the game uh as to who was going to pick up the uh, high-priced meal and and it was just it was fun to see and i guess it's it turned out the best it possibly could for the booth family in both guys scoring goals Obviously, you know, Taylor Booth, who we have seen with the national team. And again, if you watched the goals, they were good. They were good. They were good goals. So this was this was this was fun from the outside to see. And I'm sure it was it was fun for the family and the extended family of the Booths. I will say there's a type of U.S. fan out there who doesn't like Greg Berhalter, who doesn't think the U.S. is all it should be under him, which is a valid opinion to have. But in constructing that argument, they continue, in my view, to overrate the current Yanks abroad situation. And they have to reach back for stuff like this. It's a nice story, but Americans starring in a game between the 11th and 17th place teams in the Eredivisie, which is objectively like the 7th or 8th best league in Europe, to me, is utterly irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. If you're talking about the U.S. becoming an elite national team and going toe-to-toe with the big boys and making noise in major tournaments, and yet I see it brought up as, a, how could we not have a stronger national team when we have stuff like this happening in Europe every weekend? I mean, is this really in the grand scheme of things? that significant it's it's the allure and it is the magic and it is the perception as opposed to the reality of europe and i get it you know that that stamp of approval is so important and so valuable for so many out there and i know i fall victim to it too i i get it a player's playing in europe well then that player must be good why well because the world tells me that Europe is better. Well, okay, that's it's not as simple as that, to your point, Mossy. You can find crap soccer everywhere in the world. The United States does not have a monopoly on that, all right? So just because a player is playing in Europe, and I know we're using this situation as an example of it, doesn't mean that that player is better than a player that's playing domestically. It doesn't mean that that player should be playing for the national team relative to somebody else that's not playing uh, over in uh, over in Europe. And so you have to take every case individually and there has to be an understanding of the reality behind that perception where they are playing. 
who they are playing against. The, I guess the game states when these moments of magic are happening. I'm never going to poo-poo an American scoring goals anywhere in the world. I like Americans, and I like Americans that score goals. But to your point, it doesn't mean that every single time that happens, we are wasting a generation or this player is falling through the cracks. Ah, just enjoy it. Just have a good time. It's okay. Anyway, Mossy, what else? One league in Europe that I do have a lot of time for is La Liga in Spain. That's where we go next. And there is an American doing great things there. Celta Vigo with a 3-0 away win over Osasuna. Luca Della Torre with a goal and an assist. He's been very productive of late. We keep talking about him. Yeah. And, and we should. And again, just because he's scoring, obviously that gets the headlines. But he has come in and he has adjusted and he has adapted. And, you know, this is, this is a guy that we have talked about before who, you know, has used his national team. And I don't know, I guess, is it fair to call it a mixed bag in terms of his national team uh, performance, Mossy? Would you yes. agree with me that? Yes. Okay. So hopefully he's in a position right now where he's feeling good. Obviously, he's playing at a, I don't know if it's a higher level. But it's, but it's a more consistently successful level. But can you parlay that next time you get on that plane and you show up uh, with Greg Berhalter into a much more influential type of position with the national team? Uh, the big one in Spain, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid played to a 1-1 draw at the Bernabeu. Vinicius Jr. was supposed to start this match. He picked up an injury in warm-ups. So Brahim Diaz replaced him in the lineup and turned in a man-of-the-match performance, scored the Real Madrid goal, but Atletico equalized in second-half stoppers time Marcos Llorente, so it finished 1-1. Uh, I do have a couple of VAR-related thoughts uh, relating to Spain this weekend. Okay. Um, people are still salty about that Real Madrid-Almeria game, so this narrative that Real Madrid always gets helped is very much in the air right now. Atletico had a goal disallowed early in the second half, but it was the 100% correct decision. VAR did its job there. And you lose credibility when you start to complain about calls that VAR gets right just because you've just decided that your view is that VAR is horrible and biased. And so it did annoy me that there was some chatter on X about somehow Real Madrid catching a break on that play, which they did not. Well, wouldn't it just be argued by the conspiracy theorists out there that this one was so blatant that they, they had to <laughs> give some plausible deniability <laughs> and they had it to, in that moment, say, no, the, you know, the player's in offside position. It's interfering, whatever it ends up being there. So I, I don't think this is going to, 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 to answer your question or, or to respond. I don't think this is changing anybody's conspiratorial type of mind when it comes to the benefits and the advantages that Real Madrid is given. However, there was one legitimate refereeing controversy this week, and I admit I care a lot about this because it did involve a Brazilian Barcelona in their 3-1 away win over Alaves. This young Brazilian striker, Vito Hockey, came on in the second half, scored a goal, but then picked up two yellows in quick succession and was sent off. The second yellow was a joke. It was a play where the replay showed that he didn't even touch the opposition player. Barcelona are going to appeal it. It's probably going to get rescinded, but nevertheless, they had to play the last 20 minutes of that match down a man for what was just a ludicrously bad call but again because it's a second yellow you can't review it my father who i spoke to this weekend he thinks second yellows that trigger a sending off should be reviewable that if you're going to review straight red cards that feels like a weird line to draw where you're not allowed to review a second yellow that triggers a red card but uh, correct me if i'm wrong 
in the laws of the game, I think you can review it if you are reviewing it for a potential red card. And then if in that review, you determine that what was done in the moment was inappropriate, then you can change. I don't know. I, like, look, uh, you, you mentioned contact, right? You, you realize that contact does not have to occur for a foul to occur or for a card to be given. Right. But this was a play. It was like a 50-50 ball. The, uh, Alaves defender came sliding in. He got the ball, and then the Barcelona player just jumped out of his way to avoid any contact. So, so you would have rather he stayed there, uh, taken the hit, had the protruding bone in order to really justify why no, it was a dangerous the, tackle. The point is, he got booked on a play where he was just jumping out of the way to avoid a tackle oh, by okay. another got player. It. Right, got it, got it. I didn't know what you were. I didn't yeah, know what you were was, talking about. Yeah, it was it was bizarre. Well, stop being a wuss and take the hit. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Masi? Uh, yes. Uh, the January transfer window is in the books. It was pretty underwhelming, so much so that the biggest story on deadline day was actually Lewis Hamilton announcing that he's going to be joining Ferrari in 2025. Fabrizio Romano was tweeting about that because he had nothing interesting soccer-related to tweet about. <laughs> but people are already looking ahead to the summer window. Some big news there. There's a lot of smoke about Kylian Mbappe going to Real Madrid. Nothing official yet. I know we've been here before, but yeah, this well, time around, it feels real. A lot of reputable sources are saying it's definitely going to happen. They're finalizing the agreement right now. I do think Kylian Mbappe is going to be heading to Real Madrid in the summer. And again, I think we talked about this last time this came up. And, and to your point, yes, it is a whole lot closer. And I think that they would have, I mean, this isn't just smoke. This is fire. Uh, this is the logical type of progression. This does make me excited. This does make me excited for what Kylian Mbappe is going to be and, you know, what Real Madrid potentially can, can be with him showing up there. I mean, again, we talk about all these different players. Right now, if you're looking at the best players in the world, there's a lot of people that would argue that he is the best player in the world. And I think it's not just fair. I think it's justified, and I think I'd have a hard time arguing against that and so any team in the world would want that to, uh, would want that to happen i'm, I'm here for it mossy and i and that it's taken this long is only because it's psg and what they or the experiment that they tried and does this ultimately indicate the end of the psg experiment i think it probably does they're going to pivot to another approach yeah. Wow. You mentioned Mbappe being the best player in the world. I agree with you. One of the few players you can put up there on his level is Jude Bellingham, and they're going to be teaming up now, it sounds like. Pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> uh, lastly, we've reached the semifinal stage of the two major international tournaments. We'll do Africa Cup of Nations first. Uh, the final four there, Nigeria versus South Africa, Ivory Coast versus DR Congo. And, you know, you and I have covered enough tournaments. We know that when the host nation goes on a run, how it can really electrify everybody, galvanize the whole country. And we're seeing that with Ivory Coast. They had an incredible quarterfinal win over Mali. They were down a goal, down a man. They equalized in stoppage time and then won it with a goal deep in extra time, a 2-1 extra time victory there to move on to the last four. Yeah, and we, we've seen it time and time again. We even saw this past summer in uh, in Australia where everybody there's there's something there's some sort of magic and it doesn't always happen for host teams because you know you look at Qatar or others but for for a team to grab a hold of that and to use the opportunity and to unite a country and a culture 
behind a team, and we've seen it in plenty of other sports and plenty of other times. There's nothing like it, Mossy. It's it. You can feel it when you're walking down the streets. You can smell it. You can taste it, and you can certainly see it. And it's it's a beautiful thing, actually, to to see it. And then the last four of the Asian Cup will be South Korea, Jordan, Iran versus Qatar. South Korea left it late again. They were trailing Australia 1-0 and equalized in stoppage time and then won it with a gorgeous Hungman Sun free kick in extra time to win the final there. So Jurgen Klinsmann, one step closer to lifting the trophy. How you like me now, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, for all those uh, that, are, that are just hate-watching, and uh, looking for him to fail and, you know, begging for some schadenfreude, you know, you have to wait another day. Although Iran did beat Japan in the quarterfinals, U.S. fans still caught up in this whole U.S. versus Japan thing. Remember, the U.S. beat Iran in the last World Cup. So applying the laws of syllogism there, they think that proves the U.S. is better than Japan. All right. First uh, syllogism reference. So if you had that <laughs> on your uh, bingo card, check it off. And our good friends Qatar, by the way, they're the host nation in that tournament, and they're looking to win their second straight Asian Cup. So they disappointed us at the World Cup, but in the Asian Cup, that competition seems to bring out the best in them. You know, we, we, we can certainly relate when it comes to our regional competition and dominating it and using it and celebrating it and doing all that kind of stuff. So I, I like that Qatar used the World Cup, obviously, to expose Qatar to the world, but also to get experience. And even though it didn't go great for them on the field, they're kicking on. And uh, so good luck to them. Anything else, Moss? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. You can use the uh, social media handles that we have, which is SOTU with Alexi and all the different platforms that we have out there. Or you can call our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi, by the way, if you do send in your questions on your uh, social media. Mossy, what do we got today? Uh, first up, a question on X. Jason Kentner asks, what was the point of the Al Nasser Inter-Miami preseason match? The two greatest players of a generation out. Them playing initially had to be the point. Am I right? I hope Miami at least got a boatload of money for going over there. Exclamation point. <laughs> well, Jason, uh, you, you sound like a halfway intelligent uh, young man. Uh, so this should not be a surprise to you. The point is to make money. The point is to spread the brand. Uh, the point is the exact same point that all those other brands, be it big brands like Manchester United or even smaller brands, come over in preseason to the United States or to Asia and uh, use the ATM that is the United States and, uh, and Asia. They have to make back the money that they are spending. In this case, we're talking about not just one of the uh, greatest players ever to play the game in Messi, but also one of the most famous people on earth. Uh, you also go where the money is. <laughs> and certainly in Saudi Arabia, uh, say what you will about the competition on and off the field. But ultimately, one thing they do have is plenty of money. And if you are into Miami, you are go certainly going to um, go and use that, uh, that opportunity. As is the case, players are scheduled to appear. Now, contracts are written to, you know, protect uh, teams that are coming and to mandate that you play a certain amount of players within reason and nobody wants to get hurt. This is a team that certainly has other stars when it comes to Inter-Miami. Nobody is big. I recognize that. 
uh, as big as Messi. This was a game that was also billed and sold and marketed and, you know, ultimately <laughs> reason why we all turned up for the potential um, rematch or maybe the final one-on-one between Messi and Ronaldo. So long adversaries and such different types of personalities and stars, but equally huge in their own right. And neither one of them played. Uh, And the story was as much about both of these players sitting on the sideline as it was about what happened on the field. Ultimately, the scoreline, while it's not good, it's not a good look for a MLS team to go over to Saudi Arabia, who we've talked about is in comp- the U.S. is in competition with, and MLS is in competition with, and to lose, and to lose badly 6 nothing, even with Cristiano out there on the field, it's still a preseason game. Uh, you're not going to lose too much sleep. But, you know, when I think about this Messi machine that has been created, Messi signed the contract. Messi knew exactly what he was getting into. And MLS, but in this case, Inter-Miami, also recognized what was going to have to be done in order to make up the money that they are paying out. And the international tours, they had to be done. They will continue to be done. And it's absolutely the right business thing to do. And you might break some hearts along the way and you might disappoint some people along the way, but you have to find ways to generate that revenue. Uh, just for the record, Messi did make a late substitute appearance in the 6-0 defeat to Al Nasser. He didn't play at all this past weekend in a 4-1 win over a Hong Kong 11. The fans were furious. They booed. Tata Martino had to apologize afterwards. Uh, but to go back to the Al Nasser match, because remember, in our last pod, we had Doug McIntyre on, and he was talking up this burgeoning rivalry between MLS and the Saudi Pro League, and then Al Nasser go out and lay that result on Inter-Miami. Uh, so that generated a lot, a lot of reaction on X. And look, what MLS fans need to understand is this conversation is not on the level. People are just looking to have a go at MLS. Uh, and MLS fans take the bait every time. When I was scrolling through my timeline during that match, every other post was some agitated MLS fan feeling the need to explain that it's preseason for Inter-Miami and midseason for Al Nasser, and you have to understand the context. And yeah, people know that, but they don't care. They just see an excuse to have a go at MLS, and they're going to take it. Well, you can scream and yell about context, but no, to your point, nobody nobody cares. And it's not, it's not even fair for people to have context. I can talk about the apples and oranges of this compare and contrast all day in terms of the, the realities on and off the field of what MLS is and what the Saudi Arabia League is. That, but that doesn't matter. And this is ultimately a battle for hearts and minds uh, when it comes to Major League Soccer. This is a battle domestically and internationally for being relevant. And when you go out there and you get your ass kicked 6 nothing by a Saudi Arabia team that you are in competition with, you know, they get to strut. And that's okay. Let them have, let them have their moment uh, going forward. Uh, did you see, you know, the, the, the angst and the, um, the irritation and the anger of uh, over there in, uh, in Hong Kong and, and Messi and, and his team being booed? You can do some things to mitigate that if you are messy. Now, we know he's not the most gregarious and social, but if I was him, because you can, you can talk about the contract and everything like that, but ultimately this is a reflection on him and his brand. You should be doing everything in your power to make people feel like you're giving back to them and you are giving them, because you know, these people are paying $600 a ticket 
And so there are things that you can do. And I know it's been suggested he do appearances and to sign autographs. If I was him, I would be doing all of that. Because it's real easy to just say, no, I was hurt. So, you know, buyer beware out there. Yeah, but you're going to end up looking like the ass. I will say these two games that Inter-Miami played in Saudi Arabia was a chance for me to lament the fact that Brazilians are such shameless mercenaries. Uh, in the Al-Hilal match, the third and fourth Al-Hilal goals were scored by Brazilians, Michael and Malcolm. And then against Al-Nasseri, Brazilian Talisca scored a hat-trick. I looked this up on Transfer Mercat. There's like 30 Brazilian players in the Saudi Arabian League. There's three Argentines. Is that because we're so much better and more in demand or just because Brazilians actually accept these crazy offers? I mean, some of the players I just mentioned are still good enough to be playing in European clubs and, and had a market there and instead chose to take the money and go to Saudi Arabia. Maybe they just wanted the adventure. Yeah. Maybe they wanted the adventure going to Saudi Arabia. DC United's over in Saudi Arabia right now. And by the way, it was, it was the same thing in China when the Chinese league had that period where they were throwing crazy money around. There were way more Brazilians in that league than any other foreign nationality. Taliska, who scored the half against Inter Miami. He played three seasons in China and now is in his third year, I believe, in Saudi Arabia. So he, he completed the China-Saudi Arabia double there. Good for him. That's, uh, I'm sure he's yeah. proud of... MLS, that's what... MLS is about romance. <laughs> MLS is about doing it for the game. The people that really, really care about the actual game as opposed to just the, the material goods and the money, Mossy. All right, what else? All right, next up, we've got a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. This is Scott from Illinois. Two quick things I wanted to mention. First, I love you guys. Love you, Alexi. Love you, Mossy. First thing is you guys are talking about Messi's goal against us at Copa America Centenario. And I was thinking, for these free kicks, why doesn't FIFA or the referees do something like the NFL with the chains and the first down marker? People, whatever, they just come out on the field, they put it down, and then the ref knows that's 10 yards exactly. And then the second thing, this goes back to, like, Alexi always rooting for CONCACAF teams and specifically Mexico and Canada. This makes no sense at all to me, guys. This would be the equivalent of, like, Mossy's Wolverines in the Rose Bowl and the National Championship game. And then Ohio State fans saying, oh, we want Michigan to win. It looks better for the Big Ten. Thank you, guys. Um, have a great day. All right, here we go. Thank you, Scott uh, from Illinois. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, well, thank you for your questions and thank you for uh, listening. Okay, so when it comes to the free kick suggestion and the the chains, look, I, I know at times I've talked about how VAR came into being because. We just wanted to get the call right, and we have the technology, and certainly the game looks drastically different than it did 20 years ago, 30, 40, and you know, all the way back. However, there is a special part about soccer, and that is the gray area that exists. It is, it is not perfect. It is imperfect, and I love the fact that it is imperfect. And so when it comes to the 10 yards, I, I don't, I don't want chains coming on the field in order to make it perfect. I love the human element of pacing it out or guesstimating it that often happens when it comes to the, uh, to the referees. And yes, inches can make a difference. Some of the greatest teams in the world. But I've, I've said this before. I think that the game reflects life. And life is not fair. And soccer is not fair. Life is not perfect, 
and soccer is not perfect. And while we attempt to take some of the, the nuance and the gray areas of the game out of the game, and in some cases fairly, and I think rightly so, there still, I think, has to be that human element of the game. And I know that sounds romantic in nature, but I don't think that <laughs> chains are the way to go. Can you find a way, you know, with the, with the foam and, and all that to, I guess, make it clearer and more succinct when it comes to the, 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 uh, the measurements? Yeah, but I think that this is a, a small thing. I don't, this, is, this has never bothered me, to be quite honest with you. When it comes to uh, your your second question, right? Um, I am very protective. I am very tribal uh, of my family and my extended family. And whether it's the team or the people I work with and it goes out and out, whether it's the city I live in or the state I live in or the country I, I live in or the region that I've played soccer in and that I certainly live in right now. And so, yes, I do have an affinity and a connection and a closeness to CONCACAF for what it is. Is it perfect? No. And so if and when CONCACAF teams are doing well, I think it is a good thing. I think it is a good thing for the U.S. You know, when we talk about Comnebol Mossy and we talk about all these great teams, and I know it is a little different, not so very different in terms of 41 members when it comes to CONCACAF and 10 members when it comes to Comnable. But the quality that Comnable brings is constantly talked about. And there is a value to Comnable teams, to Comnable as, as an entity, but also to the individual teams of being good. And so I, I get the Ohio State, Michigan thing and, and all that, but I just come at it from a much more regional perspective. Now, I would never want another CONCACAF team over my U.S. team. But if and when other CONCACAF teams are doing well, I am comfortable enough and strong enough to be able <laughs> to celebrate that. And I don't think in any way that diminishes how I think about me as an American or an American soccer team. I think it's specifically Mexico, which is the issue. You've called Mexico-U.S. the greatest rivalry in international soccer. And when you talk about sports rivalries, implicit in that is that that's the team you least want to see do well. Ohio State is certainly the college football team I least want to see do well. I'm sure your wife feels the same way about Michigan. Uh, so people did find it odd back in 2018 when the U.S. was out of the World Cup and you suddenly adopted Mexico as your team. But So I think about this. I, of the CONCACAF teams, obviously, I want nothing more than the U.S. to be the first men's national team to win a World Cup. However, if Mexico found its way to the final of a World Cup and was playing against France or England, I'd, I'd, I'd be a Mexico fan. Wow. I would want Mexico to win. So my rivalry, and you know, we often throw around, and I, I'm as guilty of it as anyone using the word hate. I don't, I don't use that word anymore. But this rivalry and this competition, which is fierce, and I know it's all relative because it's just sports, really. But this rivalry that we have, it doesn't preclude me from wanting good things to happen. You know, and, and maybe they are enemies at times. But they are also, you know, our partners and they are our neighbors. And they're, they're, 
we're all kind of in this together. I know it sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but that's the way that I feel. So I don't know. I'll ask you folks out there, if Mexico, if you're a U.S. fan, if Mexico was in a World Cup final, would you want Mexico to win? It's a good question to ask. You are unique, my friend. I, I can't see Sean Sullivan ever rooting for Florida. I can't see Kyla ever rooting for Washington. I can't see Aaron Schechter and John Marcus ever rooting for UCLA. Those rivalries run deep, my friend. <laughs> well, when they, when they talk about these conferences, right, don't you want your conference to be viewed as competitive and really, really good? And doesn't that, doesn't that raise all boats? Uh, I personally don't. I root against every Big Ten team in bowl games, NCAA tournaments. I root against Commonwealth teams and major. But if they all suck, then then I'm going to look at you as playing in a league. Familiarity breeds contempt. They're the teams you face most often, and so you get it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm weird. Maybe okay. Convince me. (laughs) Convince me. Oh my goodness. I do agree with that. You just said, I'm weird. But I'm weird? Yeah, I'm definitely weird. Listen, Scott, great question. Thank you so much. Uh, And uh, also thanks to uh, Jason. And anybody else out there, please send in those questions. And uh, not only do you make us think about things that maybe we haven't, but, you know, we'll throw them back out there and, you know, throw it out. You know, what would you do if Mexico was in a World Cup final? Man, oh man, that would be interesting. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. A lot of brouhaha, Mossy, over the last uh, few days here with uh, our U.S. Women's National Team captain, Lindsay Horan. Uh, you know her, you love her. Uh, I know her, I love her. Uh, however, she went and did an interview with The Athletic and uh, you know, was, was spitting, spitting hot, hot takes. Lindsay Horan in The Athletic, quote, American soccer fans, most of them, aren't smart. They don't know the game. They don't understand. But it's getting better and better. She also said, I'm going to piss some people off. Well, so she's obviously knew what, what she was saying and the effect that it could have. She said, quote, but the game is growing in the U.S. People are more and more knowledgeable. But so much of the time, people take what the commentators say right? Question mark. My mom does it. My mom says, Julie Foudy, um, wonderful, wonderful national team player from the past and a wonderful, wonderful broadcast over there at ESPN and other places. Uh, Julie Foudy, my mom says, Julie Foudy had such a good game and I'm here just going, I was today. Okay. So much to unpack here. Uh, Lindsay Horan is a smart and strong young woman. And she's not even a young woman right now. She's just a woman, okay? Um, It's really interesting that these are the words that she chose to say. So not satisfied with already turning off many Americans who don't watch soccer. Evidently, the U.S. men's national team and the captain of the U.S., excuse me, women's national team and the captain of the U.S. women's national team has now set their sights on turning off many Americans who don't watch soccer. So that is a bold strategy. Uh, As I said before, I like Lindsey Horan. As a player and as a person, I want her on my team. I just happen to disagree with her low opinion of American soccer fans that she voiced in this article. But even if she truly believes what she is saying, it does seem like a very strange 
and needless shot to take at a time, as I said, when the U.S. women's national team is desperate to rehabilitate their image after the failure of last summer and the way that they have turned off people. Again, don't kill the messenger. And I fundamentally disagree with her premise here. And I actually think, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I actually think American soccer fans are arguably some of the most educated and interesting and well-rounded in the game of soccer. And that comes from the fact that, you know, we are in a country where, yes, soccer isn't king, but American soccer fans have often had to seek and discover that game. And whether it's the domestic game and all of our leagues that we have, or whether it's the international game that continues to go on around us and obviously is always used as a compare and contrast. And this proactive approach, out of necessity, has given American soccer fans this unique appreciation and this view of the game. And it's not provincial. It's worldly. We see beyond our borders. And American soccer fans are forced to see this game relative to that world and not just our country. And this means American soccer fans are more educated, I think, about the world that we live in relative to soccer than others. And also because of this unique American culture that we on this show celebrate and talk about, warts and all, American soccer fans are exposed to a wider spectrum of soccer styles and leagues and players and ideas and et cetera than all those other countries. And this has produced a soccer palette, if you will, for American soccer fans that I think is much more diverse than many soccer-centric countries and cultures. And when I think about my upbringing, for example, Mossy, I think about all the different influences that I had. And I played for uh, British coaches, and Hispanic coaches, and Iranian coaches, and the list goes on and on and on. All these different styles and all of different ways of thinking about the game. And as I said, back in the day, we had to really work to find our soccer, passing VHS tapes and doing all these different things. But what I think is that it's created this unique American soccer culture and this unique American soccer fan that, like I said, is incredibly intelligent. And so, no, Lindsay, I don't agree with you. I love the fact that you are honest. And as I've said with so many, including your teammate, Megan Rapinoe, I will fight to my dying breath to protect your freedom to say these things. But that doesn't come without consequence. And if and when I hear you say something, like you did here in this article, that I think is wrong, and I disagree with it, I think I can rebut it. And I think that I can do it in a civil and respectful manner. And I think I can point out the problems and the way this is going to be interpreted, whether that was your intent or not. As I said, Lindsay Rand, she's a big girl. She can handle criticism, uh, whether it's about what she does on the field or what she says off of the field. And that's part of this incredible country that we, uh, that we live in. I just think that it was you know, a little misguided for her to do that. And if I'm an American fan and I hear that, and she wasn't misquoted. And of course, I read the entire article because sometimes it's clickbait. And if you have a problem with the headline, then go talk to Meg and the folks over there at The Athletic. But if you are going to say these things, and if I'm a soccer fan out there that spends money that spends time, that gives of myself and my heart 
And I hear, in essence, the captain of the U.S. women's national team crapping on me and others. Eh, that's going to rub me the wrong way. And I think about what Lindsey Rand might have meant out there. And this is what it comes down to, Mossy, and I'll finish it here. We've all been around people that have gone overseas. And it should be uh, stated that Lindsey Rand has played over in France. And the experience that you get oftentimes can change you. Oftentimes, and we've seen them before, people come back and they're affected. And whether it's an extreme like, I don't know, Madonna's British accent or something like that, or if you've ever seen the commercial uh, that's out right now where <laughs> the woman goes over to France and she comes back and she says, it's actually pronounced croissant. This is what's happening here, I think, with Lindsay Aram, is she's seen what it's like and lived it playing overseas and playing in another country and the way that country and culture talks about and embraces the game and believes that that makes everybody else at home rubes, that that makes everybody else at home not know what they're talking about when it comes to soccer. And I could not disagree more. She is that affected American who now is looking down her nose at the very culture and the very landscape that not only gave her the opportunities to go and play in France or in the World Cups and stuff like that, but has worked their ass off each and every day. And I think that she, in this article, is selling them short. And I will, as the kids say, stand for the American soccer fan because, I, as I said, I believe they are worth it and I believe they have done the work. And I will put them up against any fan base in any country and any culture around the world. And I think what you will find is they're not homogenous. I think that you will find that they know much more and have a much greater spectrum of knowledge when it comes to the game than so many others. And again, out of necessity, out of the reality of living in a country and culture in the United States where soccer isn't king. I agree with you in general, and especially so on the women's side. If Christian Pulisic had made these comments, again, I wouldn't agree with it, but I could see why on the men's side, you would sort of look down on American soccer fans and maybe think that those in Europe understand the game more. But boy, for a, a U.S. women's player to make this comment is bizarre to me because I think uh, the United States has the most knowledgeable, passionate women's soccer fans in the world. W would you not agree? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there is a, yeah, the, the cultures of women's soccer and certainly the history and the success that we have. and you know, we put a lot of money into it. And again, this isn't, this isn't about like, I'm not taking to the streets. This is about canceling Iran <laughs> or anything like that. I love that she said something interesting. I want people to say something interesting, whether I agree with them or not. But in this case, I just, I, I don't agree. And I don't understand why this was necessary to say in, the, in this moment. And if Christian Pulisic had said, had said the exact same thing, I would disagree with him. But Christian Pulisic hasn't said something like that. And Lindsay can disagree with me and get in line because I say things all the time that people disagree with. And some have very valid and fair points in terms of their criticism of the things that I say. This is ultimately a belief. 
and an opinion that Lindsay has and that I have and that they are contrary, that's just, you know, that's, that's okay. That's a good thing. But if you are going to go and talk to a big publication like this and it comes out and they're using click, clickbaity type of uh, quotes and stuff like that, you know, it, it, it comes with the territory. And again, this is a this is a woman who's been around a while, and she is she understands how the media works, maybe more so than many players out there, and she understands how her words are going to be interpreted or maybe misinterpreted, and how the media is going to use what she says out there to get clicks, uh, to get people to read what uh, what's going on, which is what media does in general, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. So. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Listen, thank you to everybody, including Lindsay Horan, for giving us content. Keep, uh, keep doing that, and I wish her luck on and off the field, and we can agree to disagree on this one. Thank you to everybody for downloading and reviewing and rating and doing all the different things that you do. We live in interesting times and wonderful times. We came on here in this, uh, in this show talking about uh, the 2026 tournament coming into a little bit more clearer focus, which is wonderful, and as I said earlier, it makes it so real, and I cannot wait for these next few years. And whether it's through this summer or obviously into 2026, it's going to be awesome on and off the field. And I think it's going to fundamentally change, once again, that, Amer- that incredible American soccer landscape that exists out there. And it will be a seminal moment, and it will, it will be done in an America that has not only changed, has not only improved, but I think is worth your time and worth your, uh, worth your support, and certainly worth my praise and everything else's praise. We'll talk to you again next week, and until, as always, my friends, size the day.